Hi, everyone. This is Jacob joining you as always. Welcome back. Today on the pod, I wanted to talk in a little more detail than we normally do on this podcast. And I want to spend a few episodes. We'll kind of be rotating between these episodes and instrument breakdown episodes because I've had a lot of requests from listeners to get a little more specific and to give people a little more insight into specific types of music and and specific details about classical music. Of course, the philosophy of this whole podcast is that I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about history, theory, things that I think other podcasts do very well, and also that I believe don't always necessarily contribute to the listening process. Here we're all about listening and how to make your listening process more worthwhile, more meaningful. But I think we can do that in the context of a little more specific music. And so today we're going to start talking about uh, eras of music. And anyone who's taken uh, Music Appreciation, History of Classical Music 101, probably knows that there are four eras of what we might consider more modern Western music, that of the Baroque the classical era, which often is confused with classical music in general, the romantic era, and the modern or contemporary era. And these are, of course, very loose definitions, and the lines are a little bit blurry between these eras, but they all show some different stylistic characteristics. And so we're not going to talk too much about the history or anything like that of these eras, but we're going to talk about some tips for listening when you know that you're listening to in the case of today, a Baroque piece of music. So very quickly, what was the Baroque era? Well, it's it's the earliest of the four eras that we might be talking about when we talk about modern, classical, Western music. It went from, most historians say it went from about 1600 to 1750. 1750 was around when Mozart was born and when Haydn was starting to gain recognition as a composer, and those are kind of the major classical era composers, the one that followed the Baroque era. But really, a lot of the high Baroque music came from the late 17th century and early 18th century. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. If you ever listen to a classical radio station on a commute or something like that, you probably hear a lot of Baroque music. Because a few things about the Baroque era... Um, composers wrote a lot more music then than they did in in following eras of music. And they also wrote, in, in keeping with that, they wrote a lot more quickly. And I think Baroque music, the reason why they play so much of it on the radio is that there's simply so much of it. And I think a lot of people hear it and they think a lot of it sounds very similar. It sounds very pleasant. Composers would churn stuff out for individual performances. Often there was this idea that you would perform a new cantata by Bach every single week in church. And so he ended up writing over 200 cantatas. And later in history, composers took a lot more time with their works because they really saw each score that they produced as this like almost religious document that would last for history. So there's a lot of Baroque music, and a lot of times I think it's hard for listeners to wade through 
so much music and to get to the core of what they're trying to listen to. So in that vein, we've got five tips for you for listening to today. We'll talk about Baroque music and we'll do a similar thing for other eras of music as well. So I want to dive right in. And my first tip is the only one where you'll actually have to do some research on what you might be listening to, because I think it's important specifically in Baroque music more than anywhere else to distinguish between sacred and secular music. The reason why a lot of people think of the Baroque era as the kind of start of modern classical music in the more broad sense is because it was the time, the 1600s, the 1700s, where secular music was really gaining a foothold as on an equivalent plane to that of sacred music. In the Renaissance, in medieval times, the primary purpose of art music was to supplement church services and the like, at least in Western culture. And so the the kind of precursors to modern classical music were Gregorian chant, masses, motets by medieval or Renaissance composers. Um, but bar- the Baroque is really where the secular uh, became on kind of an equal playing field with the sacred. And so you had a composer, the most famous composer of the Baroque era, Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote enormous amounts of sacred music. He, he worked in churches basically his whole life, and he was a very religious man himself. But he also wrote tons of secular music. And so if there's a way for you to find out what you're actually listening to, that can help you to, uh, in, in the following tips, to figure out kind of how you want to approach listening to a piece like this. Now, this is kind of a sweeping generalization, but for the most part, a lot of sacred music has some sort of vocal text. It's usually written for church and, and you know, it's set to Latin or uh, maybe in, in the case of Bach, some German, but there's some religious text that's usually involved with sacred music. And usually if you hear an instrumental piece, it's likely going to be secular because instrumental music, unlike vocal music, has no immediate way to suggest kind of narrative content or uh, it's purely subjective in a way. And so it lends itself much better to secular music because there's nothing inherently sacred about instrumental music. That rule is not always going to hold. There are secular cantatas, which is a type of musical form that uses voices by Bach, for example, and Handel wrote operas. And so this is not always going to be the case, but especially if you hear instrumental Baroque music without singers, chances are it's a secular piece. It's not always true, but but it's a it's a rule that you can kind of potentially abide by. And we're mostly going to talk about secular music today, but a listening tip just in general, if you find that this is a sacred piece and it has a text, it often really helps to to look into, if you have the chance, or, or after the fact, if you're listening and you catch something on the radio, look into what the religious text actually is and use that as a roadmap for the emotion that might be trying to be evoked by the composer. Often it will be a Latin text, you know, if it's Kyrie eleison, those are literally the two words of the Kyrie in the Latin mass, and so there's not a ton to go off of, but 
Uh, if it's the credo, there's a Latin credo, and it might help to read a translation of that just to get a sense of what the composer is trying to capture, why the credo might sound different from the curiae, might sound different from the gloria. These are all parts of the Latin mass, uh, just as an example. But li- checking out those sacred texts and actually just trying to get a little bit of a sense of their feeling, if they're happy, joyful texts, if they're mournful texts, if they're foreboding, you know, warning of the uh, foreboding power of God in some way, that can give you a clue as to what you're listening for. And so that's one tip that I have. Distinguish between is this a sacred or a secular piece? And if it's sacred, especially if it's using voice, try to get a little bit of a sense of what they're actually saying, because often it's going to be in a language that most of us don't know how to speak. But in any case, the rest of our tips are going to be primarily about uh, secular, uh, I mean, yeah, secular music, and they're going to be um, for how to listen. So let's go straight to our second tip, which is that a lot of Baroque music, I think people find more uniform than other styles of music, and it all sounds relatively similar. That's why it works so well for the radio. You just kind of turn it on in the background and it can go. And so, of course, this podcast, Attention to Detail, we don't like that kind of thing. We like to listen closely. We like to hear the differences. We like to find interesting nuances in the music. And so one of the, from modern ears, now that we live in, in the year 2020 and Whether you've listened to a lot of classical music or not, you've probably at some point in your life heard some sort of romantic music, some sort of classical music, even if it's just on in the background, probably some modern music. You've seen modern art. You've seen romantic art. One trend over the course of history that kind of culminated in the romantic era was that composers, artists started wearing their emotions way more on their sleeve in their artwork than they did in this period of the Baroque. And so what we're used to, our ears are used to in the year 2020, is uh, very obvious drama, very obvious contrasts of emotion, mood swings that correspond with the day-to-day experience of being human and maybe even magnify the day-to-day experience of being human. And that was not really the primary aim of Baroque composers. And so Baroque composers don't really wear their their emotions on their sleeve. And in fact, their whole relationship with the idea of music as an expressor of emotions was something that I think was very different. That's a history lesson. It's not what we're going to get into today. But that lends itself to on kind of not close listening, just listening in the background, a lot of Baroque music can sound very similar. So one of the tips, the most important tip, I think, for listening to Baroque music is to listen for small moments and try to find the differences in emotion, in detail that these composers are trying to convey because those small nuanced moments carry so much more weight in the Baroque period than they would, let's say, in a piece from the Romantic era. So let's listen, just as an example, to two quick clips of pieces from the Romantic era, the first is is by Edward Elgar. He's really very late Romantic. The second is by Tchaikovsky. And they're both in some way kind of, or they've been co-opted in some way to express some sort of pain. And in the, in the uh, Elgar, you'll hear this very profound, inward, uh, reserved, emotional, but, but uh, 
sad pain. And in the Tchaikovsky, you will hear complete anguish, uh, you know, the most intense outward pain you can imagine. It's almost like screaming. So let's listen to these clips back to back just as a, a context for us to see how wildly different romantic music could sound. Romantic music that's intending to express effectively similar emotions, not the same, but effectively similar emotions, negative, pessimistic, mournful emotions. So we'll listen to these two clips back to back, first the Elgar and then the Tchaikovsky. So there you have it, heightened contrast, both incredibly expressive pieces, but wildly different. You know, one is very quiet, one is outburst of volume, emotion, but also just couldn't be more different in terms of expressive content, and yet it's it's a similar emotional state in some way. So now let's compare that to two clips from two Baroque composers, Bach and Handel. Um, the first is the beginning of the St. John Passion, the second is a movement from the Messiah, and both of these are supposed to kind of evoke a sense of foreboding, wonderment. Um, in the case of the Bach, this is the start of the St. John Passion, and the chorus is singing, Lord, our ruler, whose fame in every land is glorious, show us through your passion that you, the true Son of God, blah, 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 have become transfigured. So it's kind of this awe, but also this kind of chilling awe. And the handle, uh, this is... For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. And this is, you know, a, a scene from the Bible. And, of course, similarly, it's you're supposed to behold darkness falling over the earth. It's kind of scary. It's kind of awe-striking. So let's also listen to these back-to-back. -back. And I think you'll find, at least on a not particularly close listen, these similar passages that are trying to evoke a similar but not totally identical emotion are going to come across as being much more similar than our romantic counterparts that we just listened to. So here's the Bach and the Handel.
So our point here in listening to these two Baroque clips and comparing them with the Romantic clips is that when you've identified that you're listening to a piece of Baroque music, I think it's good to activate your sense of what are the real, real details, fineries that I'm noticing in this music. And specifically, if you you want to tap into kind of emotional details, it's good to listen and be as specific as you can because it's very easy to hear the Tchaikovsky and immediately say, okay, that's intense pain. It's a little harder to listen and be like, okay, what is Handel or Bach really trying to say to me here in terms of an emotional content to their music? And how is that going to be different from uh, other Baroque composers' expressions of a similar emotion? Because I think to a certain extent from modern ears, it's hard for us to see how this is, you know, as great composition as something like Tchaikovsky or Elgar because they hit us over the head so clearly with here's what we're trying to say, at least in comparison. But here's where history comes into play and where it helps us. We, it, it, it's important to know that these composers had a different kind of sense of what emotions music could express. And so they were operating much more on a detail level than, say, the Romantics, who were putting everything out there. And so if we appreciate that, then I think we can realize that a composer like Bach or Handel has has just as much emotional content. It just requires us as listeners to listen a little more specifically and a little with a little more nuance for that element of, of listening to music, the emotional content. That, of course, is not the only element of listening to music. I think for a lot of people, that's the primary element, but that's another thing that we talk about on this podcast all the time, which is that there's a lot that we can listen for, and it's not just about attaching a kind of broad emotion to a passage of music. So let's go on to our third tip, and our third tip is Baroque music often takes very simple and very perceptible forms. Musical form is something that gets increasingly complex as we get later and later in the trajectory of classical music to where you have a Mahler symphony that's an hour and a half long, wildly deformed, restructured sonata form, multiple themes, multiple breakthrough moments, incredibly hard to track for the average listener. Baroque form is in comparison, very simple, and it's actually something that we can use to our listening advantage to have a good sense of the architecture of a piece. And one of the most common forms that you'll find, especially in instrumental music, is there's a fancy word for it. It's called ritornello form, but it's effectively the form that any pop song takes. Chorus, verse. And the idea is that there's a thing that comes back over and over and over, that we can recognize, that we hear, and we keep returning to that. And we get this sense of kind of, uh, you know, gratification when we, when we arrive back at what we know. And then there are these little kind of exploratory episodes in the middle where we get to examine a little bit of the ambiance that we've created or the kind of subject matter that we might be in. But we wander off a little bit musically and we do a little exploration and then we come back. And so basically a ritornello form is just this form where the music that we start recognizing keeps returning over and over with these interjected episodes. And for this, I think our mapping technique from this podcast can be very helpful. 
if you want to review that mapping technique, we released an episode recently which reviewed it, and you can go all the way back to the beginning of the podcast where we talked about it originally, but that's for listening to kind of the larger scale form. And these pieces, if they're in ritornello form, if you hear a piece called like a concerto grosso or uh, a lot of Baroque sonatas, they might be called, these are often going to be in ritornello form. And in any case, whatever form it might be in, you want to listen for stuff that returns. And then in the interim, you want to kind of listen for where is this venturing off? Ooh, now I can notice I got back to something that I recognize. And this will let you kind of have a good sense of the architecture of the piece. And especially if you can listen in detail to those parts where it kind of ventures off a little bit and it goes into new territory, stuff that you haven't heard. That's where a lot of the detail comes. That's a lot of where the intrigue comes like the verse of a song, you know, you actually get some content there as opposed to just the chorus. And so this is something that's really valuable, I think, to try to track in a lot of Baroque music, these simple forms with clear landmark points as to where you are in the piece. And I think our mapping technique, we aren't going to review it here, but that one can be especially helpful for this kind of listening. Let's listen to a good example of this. I'll play you a famous ritornello, something that returns, and we'll listen to tiny little clips of some of the episodes uh, from this Bach Brandenburg concerto. Many of you might recognize the beginning of this ritornello, and one of the great things about ritornello form is composers knew they had to write a good head of the ritornello. The first few notes have to hook you, and so you hear this returning over and over, and you go, okay, I recognize that. And so it gives us a great sense of the architecture of the piece. So here's a famous piece, one of Bach's Brandenburg concertos in classic ritornello form, and I'll play little clips as well from a couple of the episodes. So there you have it. That is an example of ritornello form, but a lot of Baroque forms in general are just easier to track than, than other forms that we have in later periods of, of classical music. And so it's important to try to listen in Baroque music for what you've already heard. And those can act as real signposts. Composers intended to use those moments as signposts for you. So use them to your advantage. On to our fourth tip. This is an important one as well. In modern day performance, and when you're listening to Baroque music now, especially on recording, but also in the context of a live concert, there's a huge, huge distinction in the performance of Baroque music, specifically Baroque music, and now a little bit classical era music, a little bit of early Romantic music, but certainly in Baroque music, between historically informed performance and modern performance. Historically informed performance is what it sounds like. 
often groups that perform historically informed performances play on original instruments. Instruments have changed a lot since the 1680s, but the idea is to perform on instruments that these composers might have been imagining they were actually writing for. But there's also a lot of things that we can listen for kind of technically that make the performance very different. And so I want to actually, for this one, play you two quick examples of the same piece. First, in a modern performance, a recording that was made uh, very much in a modern style, and then a performance by a historically informed group. And I just want you to listen to these two clips and see if you notice any differences, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the main stylistic differences between modern and historical performance. So the first one will be the modern performance, and the second one will be the historical performance. So there you have it, a modern performance and a historical, historically informed performance. A couple of things might jump out right off the bat. A lot of modern performances are just way slower than historically informed performances. So often historically informed groups take much quicker tempos, so everything is a little more upbeat. You might have noticed in the modern performance it feels much heavier, much more... Uh, stuck in the mud if you want to look at it in kind of a negative way the historically performed performances is much more buoyant much more light you can certainly hear that also in the way they play kind of individual notes modern performances tend to be much more you use a lot more to get a little technical you use a lot more sustained sound you use a lot more vibrato which gives this kind of vocal singing quality to every note that you play. In historically informed performance, you have decay on every note that you play and you use much less vibrato so it feels crisper. It feels like every note is, there's more clarity. It feels much less sung, but it feels much more, like we said, maybe buoyant. Part of the technical reason for that is that, uh, especially for string instruments, the bow has changed. A Baroque bow, when you got to the end of the bow, it was super light at the end, and so naturally you would have this big decay on every note. And modern bows have much more ability because they're heavier all the way through to sustain. 
And they also didn't play with much vibrato, as we call it now, which is where you wiggle your hand back and forth and create this kind of vocal quality that's very expressive. And now we use a lot of that. And so a lot of modern performances of Baroque music, especially 50, 60 years ago, um, before the historically informed movement came into performance, used a ton of vibrato. They also used massive forces. They would use big choirs that you would find in a Mahler symphony. And this was all in the wake of romanticism, modernism. You know, you'd use the same forces for a Mahler symphony as you would for a Bach piece. And this is an endless debate in, in music making of what should we do? Had Bach lived today, would he have written the same music? We don't know, probably not, but but is the right thing to perform the music as he would have imagined it on the instruments that he would have written it for? Or is the idea to take the improvements that we've made, potential improvements, and perform in that style? But in any case, you can notice many, many expressive and kind of qualitative differences between modern and historical performance if you listen. Another important one, if your ears are tuned this way, Historically informed groups often tune actually lower. Their their A was at 415 hertz uh, back in the day, and now we tune to 440 hertz. So the actual pitch that they use is also different. And that's actually one way you could hear it on that recording. Those, those two recordings back-to-back, for example, if your ears are attuned to that kind of thing, that's one way that you can recognize... Uh, if something is a historically informed performance. But in any case, that's something to listen for in Baroque music is if you have some favorite pieces, listen to several recordings because you might get wildly, wildly different interpretations from the performers and different impressions from that piece. I think probably most of us can agree that those two clips that we heard, they sound like two different pieces. And they're exactly the same piece, the same text, but with this wild variety in performance, it lends itself to a totally different listening experience. So one element, this is the fourth tip, but listen to the performance. Listen to, are they decaying on every note? Are they not sustaining? Are they using a lot of vibrato? Are they sustaining everything? Is it slow? Is it fast? Because these change the affects of of the music that they're playing greatly, greatly. It's one of the one of the biggest differences in recordings of music from the Baroque era. And our last tip, our fifth tip, is to listen to what we might call ornamentation or also just the general concept of virtuosity. Um, Baroque, the name Baroque, if you if you've seen Baroque art, what it suggests is something with a lot of frills and a lot of uh, kind of Uh, technical splendor, and that is certainly a characteristic of the Baroque era in music. They were very, um, they wrote a lot, a lot of concertos, so a lot of Baroque music that you listen to has a soloist, and the soloist at that time was very free to ornament, to improvise, to add what they wanted in terms of their own unique soloistic ability to the performance. A lot of this is also historical. At that point, as I've kind of alluded to already, the score was not seen as this quasi-religious, you know, ironclad document that sits in a museum and Brahms' Third Symphony is these notes written in stone, passed down from generation to generation, codified in critical editions. No, Baroque music often was turned out, you know, in a day and then go ahead and play it. 
and the soloist was free to do a lot of what they wanted. And so the actual music itself is almost secondary in a lot of Baroque music, and what's most important is the ornamentation, the virtuosity, the kind of show-offing of the soloist or soloists. And so that's one other thing to listen to in Baroque music is just experiments that the soloist might take with a given piece of music, things that they might change expressively to their liking. And it actually lends itself to great live performances. The problem with the other thing, of course, was Baroque music was being written 200 years, 250 years before the advent of recordings. They didn't even have a concept of recordings. And so recordings kind of codify performances. They crystallize them into one specific moment. And so you can't improvise on a recording from from day to day, of course, because the recording is set. And so there was much more of a sense of, okay, this could be this way this day. Ooh, we could take a little time here spontaneously in the moment. And so listening to live Baroque music is often very exciting, especially if it's a historically informed group that does this kind of improvisation and experimentation, because it lends itself to the creativity of the performers themselves. And so I want to listen just as a little example of this to another super famous Baroque piece. This is Spring by Vivaldi from the Four Seasons. And let's listen to... um, a kind of really standard performance of this that just plays exactly what's on the page. And then let's listen to a little more exploratory performance back to back and just hear some of the differences in the the kind of chances or uh, spontaneity, experimentation that the soloist is bringing to this particular piece. None of uh, her decisions in this second clip are necessarily written into the score, but she's perfectly entitled to do these things because that's that's the style of Baroque music. So here's two clips, same passage from Vivaldi's Spring.
All right, so there you have it. That's that was Janine Jansen in the second clip. A fantastic recording of of Vivaldi four seasons. And those are our five tips for listening. I think what the general takeaways is that if you can listen to the individual performers in a lot of Baroque music, that makes a big difference. The form is very perceptible, and so you can pay attention to that. And you want to get past that sense that all of it sounds the same. There's a lot to listen for in Baroque music. And so it's just as good as anything else to tune in and try to listen to the details. So as a review, our five tips, you want to distinguish between secular and sacred music. You want to try to kind of zone in because the emotional content is not going to be as easily perceptible to you a lot of the time. So it takes a little more nuance, a little more exploration of what you're actually hearing. You want to listen to these very simple and perceptible forms and try to hear music that returns because that will give you a lot of sense of architecture and landmark points. You want to try to isolate or try to pay attention to the performance. And specifically, if you can identify, try to listen for, is this more of a modern performance? Is this more historical? But just generally, what what kind of decisions are the performers making? Are they playing a really sustained, heavy sound? Or is it light and buoyant? Is it fast or is it slow? And then you want to listen to these soloists a lot of the time. If you get a chance to listen to a Baroque concerto, uh, you want to listen to how they ornament things, how they add their own technical virtuosity, much like Baroque art, and spontaneous decisions that they might be making, especially if you go to a live concert, what they might be choosing to do in the moment, which keeps the music so alive, because you'll never get to experience that exact rendition of this piece again. And you can go and listen to something like The Four Seasons a hundred times and hear a totally different performance each time. So those are our five tips for listening to Baroque music. We'll have more of these in the coming weeks for for other eras in classical music. Hopefully this is helpful for our listeners to go and check out some some Baroque music of yourself for yourselves. There's certainly a lot out there. I'm sure there are playlists on YouTube where you just type in five hours of Baroque music and it'll do that. But the key from us here at Attention to Detail is listen a little more closely, activate that attention, and just try to really hear the details of this baroque music that you might be listening to so thanks as always for joining us we will be back soon and in the meantime hope everybody is still staying safe get those flu shots go and vote and we will see you back here soon